casa. The world is talking. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. I want to invite you to listen to the Sharon Kleiner Hour. The power of water, global warming, which means climate change, and your health. I bet you haven't thought about how this is happening, what is happening with your health. People are describing every day, oh my, I have never had allergies before. Why do I have more allergies? Why is the flu more contagious than ever? Why are my eyes so dry? In other words, the burning, the itching, and everything that goes along with drowsiness and dry eye. Did you know that as of last Saturday, August 9, 2008, the global population has grown to 6.5 billion people, and water is the issue. I'm concerned about your knowledge and your health and what you understand is global warming. It means a climate change. It's been going on since the beginning of Earth's birth. We must learn that without the water, there is no life, and with water, there is an eternity. But we must have water in the air, moisture in the air we don't see. Did you know that when it's raining, there is no moisture in the air until it stops raining because the moisture was pulled out of the air to have rain? Now think of the logic. Moisture was pulled out of the air to have it rain. When it stops raining, there's moisture in the air. An organism of life on Earth, everything on Earth, must have that unseen moisture in the air. Not too much humidity, not too cold for the organism of your life to breathe all over Earth. Did you know that agriculture takes 70 percent of your fresh water worldwide? Now, of course, we need food to eat, and we need that water to be able to uh, absorb into the ground and grow our food for the future. 3% of the world's water is fresh, and only 1% is usable. Did you understand? 3% of the world's water is fresh only, but only 1% is usable, and our population is growing. And, And remember... This is what the show is about, and each week we're trying to give you some new knowledge, easy listening, to understand the nature of your health and the nature of your earth. You're living with earth. It's not going to live with you. You need to learn, along with myself and others, how to live with this earth. And you know, I bet I could, I think I might be get it possible for all of us to live longer, healthier, once we understand how to be proactive. Take the knowledge we learn the water on the earth, drink a lot of water, use water therapy, and understand what you can do to be healthier and live longer. Today we have exciting guests, Tom Atsit, who we've had on before, and I really enjoy Tom. He is full of energy and information. Uh, He's a retired Forest Service ecologist discussing forest regeneration. Then we have in Nevada, Sky McLean who's the lead field interpreter for Lake Mead National Recreation Area, discussing all about Lake Mead in Nevada. And we really like to learn as much as we can about Nevada and their water. Uh, Everybody has heard of Las Vegas and uh, what they're doing in Nevada and, of course, all the water they're using. We're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist for Dry Eyes, 
an all-natural green environmental application for all-natural application for replacing lost moisture to the eye. We'll listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Tom Apson. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Thank you for listening to uh, the Sharon Klein Hour, The Power of Water and Global Warming in Your Health. Our globe is moving, our globe is changing, and we have so much to learn. And this easy listening is exciting because so many of the talk shows kind of push us kind of fast. And I think that this show is, I've had listeners say they enjoy hearing what we have to offer, and the knowledge is almost like we're reminding everyone of the common sense, but yet it's exciting to be part of an environmental comp- uh, product company uh, with Biologic Aqua Research Center offering uh, a new listening for people to learn more about the proactiveness of our health and our life on this earth. Tom, are you with us? I'm here this morning. Well, thank you again. Um, tell us a little bit about, our listeners have not listened to you and I before, a little bit about yourself. Well, I've spent uh, all my life uh, working in uh, forestry and ecology, but mainly ecology. Of the 37 years that I've spent in this area, 30 of it has been looking at the ecology uh, and ecosystems of southwestern Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your background... uh and forestry is, what have you done uh, to be where, with the qualifications you have? Well, uh, mostly I'm in operations. It's, it's been interesting because the Forest Service is divided up into operations and research. Mm-hmm. And when you're in operations, it's like sometimes you get a maid and the maid says, I don't do windows. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're in operations, you're not supposed to do research, but over the years, I have been asked to do research and been involved in research. Mm-hmm. So mostly I've been involved in projects on the ground, everything from looking at um, <laughs> uh, Mount Ashland and the ski area, what it will mean now and into the future, looking at timber sales, looking at water use permits, mm-hmm. evaluating the streams and uh, how they uh, can provide for the salmon, you know, anything that has to You've do... You've had a lot of versatility. Yeah, anything that has to do with how the species interact with the environment, and that is basically the definition of ecology, is the interaction between the organism and the environment. And nature so, of, the nature of it. Right. And so over the years, uh, I have published... Uh, uh, peer-reviewed uh, articles on uh, fire and fire and ecology and regeneration. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically where I have spent most of my time, mm-hmm. most of my career. 
mm-hmm. in operations and making sure things get done correctly on the ground. Mm-hmm. Okay, and all the analyzing is correct. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask you, because you're in Oregon, what is the importance of the ecology of Oregon to affect the rest of the world? Well, I know that was a very leading question, but we all affect, the, our planet affects each other. And, I, and because you are such, uh, been in Oregon for so long, and your e- nature of your studies, uh, along with your um, background here in Oregon for so long, let's just say something to the listeners. How important is it for Oregon to be so serious to take care of Oregon, learn more about Oregon, the nature of Oregon that could affect the rest of the world? Well, uh, an easy one is that uh, Oregon, and in particularly southwestern Oregon and the Klamath-Siskiyou Geological Province, right where we live, right here, is kind of the grand central station of the Pacific Northwest and further. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is that this area was one of the first above water millions and millions of years ago, and the species that developed here, as other places came up above water and had land available, which was later than the Siskiyous were here, uh, actually got a lot of the species migrated onto this land. So basically... Okay, Tom, let's back up. You just said a magic interest here. Okay. That this particular area of Oregon is the Grand Central Station because it, it, it came, uh, let's say water lowered, it came above the water. Or let's, how did that happen? Explain oh. that. Well, it, was, it, it came above the water. Did the water lower, or did the, wa- the land grow above the water? Well, basically, the land grew above the water okay. because this area, just like the Aleutians or the Hawaiian Islands or a lot of places that are volcanic, they come up above water, and they uh, produce land that is available for land species. To now, did we have a lot of volcanic, was there a lot of volcanic action around here for that land to come above the water? Yes. Uh, so okay. you go back uh, actually 300 million years, mm-hmm. and there was volcanic activity uh, that put this area above water. However, when that happened, this area was about the latitude of Mexico City. And so it gradually, after it became above water, it gradually, with plate movement, you know, the plates on the continent move mm-hmm. around, mm-hmm. it moved up into this area. And, of course, things are still moving, given the earthquakes that we have around the, around the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, this place was still moving. Now, I remember someone uh, educating me that there is a columnopsis for us. Yes. And it, it was a... It's a, a, a um, uh, it's a very unique uh, area uh, yeah. it's, uh, that because of the water, and it's a rainforest area uh, uh, at one time. Tell us a little bit, because that's in that same region. That's in the region of that, which you call the Grand Central Station of the land growing above the water. It's, in, it's just right in the central Siskiyou Klamath Geological Province. Okay. So when you look at the number of rare species, say if you looked at the temperate forest way up by Eugene, there may be uh, 20 or 30 rare species in the forest there. 
But when you come down into this area and you look at rare species, uh, there are as many as 400, depending on who's counting. So this area is unique as far as the species because of the Grand Central Station, the location here of species kind of like you would think Grand Central Station, things people moving in and people moving out uh-huh. as the days change. In other words, the species in, the species out. Right. Mm-hmm. And every time they got together, you know, and, you know, somebody from New York, you know, from meets Los Angeles, and they re-distribute uh, the uh, genetic material, and they change, and then they go back home, so to speak. So there are there are species that have come here from Alaska. There are species that have come here from Southern California, and they meet and kind of redistribute the genetic material, rebreed, do this, do their thing here. Mm-hmm. And then as climate changes, and it always will be changing, they go to the far corners again. So let's, let's tap into that one now. Now that we are learning that on this planet there were part there were land that came above the water at, at different times of yes. of the um, ecological system right and i'm i'm trying to get to common sense here for for everyone in other words land came above the water at different times of hi- history right uh, now compared to, before i move into the climate here with with what happened here in this ecological System wonder. Um, where else on Earth do you believe that, if you can remember, did they have the same? Did they have the same identical thing happening at the same time? Or is there any place on Earth that you've studied that had the same identical land come above the water at the same time anywhere else? Uh, not that I know of. It's it's very difficult in ecology okay. to find an area that is exactly the same as another area. Okay, okay. It's like no two waters on Earth come out of the ground the same. They're all different. That's why research is so difficult. It's like the difference of information when you study twins. Yes. You know how important it is to study twins that have moved into different environments because they have the same genetic material? Yeah. There's no way on Earth, and and I literally mean that, as far as I know, that you could study twins, so to speak. Exactly. Okay. 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 Now, I'm going to move into climate change. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned something that the climate has been changing with the global when. Explain the the description of the two words, climate change. Well, People uh, are confused. the, The climate is just kind of the average condition you when you t- when you look on the internet and you get the weather that's what's happening right now but over a long period of time you could say that southwestern oregon is drier than say northern oregon mm-hmm. cuz the climate is different mm-hmm. so the climate is kind of the average condition of temperature and the rainfall and when you would expect floods and fires as compared to uh, another area that has a different set of conditions. Now, Tom, way back in time, didn't they have the climate change happening, and then it takes a circle again, a cycle, and it comes back to where it's almost gone in a first full circle? Or is it just always changing forward, there's no circle? Well, that's probably the second is the most accurate because ever since it's 
uh, it was made, the earth has been cooling and drying. Going forward. Yeah. And if you want to call it forward, it, I mean, well, how would you say to, it? With your background. It backward, but, but it has been changing. Uh-huh. And so there's, it's probably, you could, analogy that you could use is like yourself. You were born, and you go forward. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's no way that right now I could say, you know, I like you, Sharon, as a teenager. Go back to that. Yeah, yeah. Because there's no way. So you're saying our planet is, uh, like the water flows, is moving, always moving. So it's change means, and the word climate change is because the planet of Earth is moving on to each Stage, in other words, whatever uh, stage that may be. Now, remember, Tom. A lot of people have said the old timers have said, "Well, I remember when the climate was like this long ago. I remember in the winter we had more snow than we had in other winters. We've had more rain in some times of the year and floods than we did other times of the year. How do we? How do you explain when we say the planet is moving and changing?" But it's, it's almost like a lot of people who have lived, uh, been fortunate to live a what, long time, they remember when all of the same things were happening. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that is kind of, um, you'd have to say, a non-scientific way of looking at things. I remember this or I remember that. Okay. Your memory may not be as accurate as measurement. Okay, okay. And so what, what you try to do is say, well, when I was 20 years old, I was... Uh, vibrant and now I'm 40 and I'm still the same. I so you're always... taking the climate change and the global mo- time change very serious. Mhm. Yeah, it it things are always going to be changing. Can you do is there anything in your and I don't just to be leading, but just let's just enjoy the 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 chit chat here. Do you Tom with your background feel there's anything anybody could do about it? Yes, I, I do think there's a human influence. It's just like uh, we've talked before on some of your programs about the idea that human beings are part of nature. And just like a bear could do something about his surroundings uh, in terms of winter, they go, they find a place to hibernate. So they're doing something about their immediate climate. Mm-hmm. Ants, for example, uh, social uh, insects they're called, uh, there's the fable of the ant and the grasshopper. Mm-hmm. The ant takes charge of his life in the sense that they store food for the winter. Mm-hmm. So they're doing something about their climate, and they're doing something about their, their needs. Now, Tom, I'm going to ask you something that came across my mind just as you were saying that. Um, isn't it interesting how uh, in, uh, the ants and the bears and animals out in the, in the nature uh, all have h- habits that are always timed and programmed yes and when they're timed and programmed it's almost they're not watching the clock but there's something in nature that programs them almost exactly at the right time yes yeah, so like the like the monarch butterflies or whatever it's yeah. called yeah. it's called an internal clock and because of evolution the ones that didn't say for instance the ducks that didn't fly south mm-hmm. froze <laughs> So they no longer reproduce. And they're now watching the clock. <laughs> yeah. And so the ones that did fly south into warmer climates where there was more food survived, 
there's the ones that reproduced, and there are the ones that came back. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there is a... So if we can do something about this uh, earth, this movement, uh, because I I am convinced that there's a word called eternity, and I'm also convinced that it's the water. I'm by, I just am so convinced of the water. I'm, I'm a real boring person, Tom. I believe that the water is our message and our mission. But let's say you had one thing to start with, a list of things, but number one, the most important thing that you would encourage people to understand, that if we were going to be helping this earth with its nature, what is the most important thing that man human beings can do well uh there's gosh there's a bunch of things that come to mind but the one concept that i go back to time and time again to ground myself is the idea of maslow's hierarchy of human needs and so there are basic needs that we all have and if we don't fulfill those needs we're not going to be here for eternity we're not going to be here for very long at all we're going to take a break with our sponsor and then we're going to come back and then we're going to have you tell us about that one that sounds like a fascinating education and then we're going to talk about our forest uh tom we're going to listen to our sponsor and we'll be back in a moment with that subject You're listening to World Talk Radio, Studio A. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Tom, when you were just talking about the uh, 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 that subject, let's go back to it again. There is a you made made a, a statement uh, for us to be educated that there is a particular. Um, something you learned. Describe that again for us. Okay. Uh, it's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And how do you spell Maslow's? M-A-S-L-O-W. Okay, Maslow's. And it would be a good thing for people to really understand because it puts human behavior and human needs in a framework that is pretty easy to understand. And I've had a, I have a brother that's a psychiatrist, and so that's kind of the reason that I was <laughs> I look at that so often with your ecology okay but generally speaking uh, what we are talking about is the humans have to have air to breathe they have to have water they have to have food and they have to have safety that's at the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy okay let's start out oxygen which means the moisture in the air because if the air is dry you can't breathe very well so there's oxygen air there's water Mm-hmm. And then the, the third one was what? Food and nutrition. food, and, and then safety. The, and the fourth one was safety. And in other words, you must feel safe. Yeah, for okay. hu- for humans, you have to feel safe. And for you know, when you look at animals, uh, predation is always a concern. Uh, the amount of food is always a concern, and mm-hmm. stress, stress, is always with, always with all populations, including humans. 
Okay. So when you get back to the question about what would I think about as, as giving us an indication of how we're doing, uh, we would want to know that we have clean air, and like you've talked about a number of times, that we have clean water all over the earth, and that we have enough food to feed us. Mm-hmm. You know, safety is a little bit more complicated. It's uh, a little bit more difficult, difficult to define, but those are characteristics and uh, elements that we need as human beings, and we need to focus on. You know, you just said something in my research through the years, uh, learning that when the air is getting drier, that uh, and people are not drinking enough water, um, and our food is not is being grown too quickly or too far away, and having to be transported to long distances to for us to purchase to uh, prepare. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned safety. I think a lot of times stress, which means you don't feel as safe because you're stressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, stress can be we're dehydrating more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the air is drier. And we're not drinking enough water, and there's not enough moisture on the surface of the earth because water on the surface of the earth puts moisture into the air. Um, you, that is very fascinating. Now, let's get into also what puts some oxygen in the air, our forest regeneration. Let's get into one of your favorite subjects. Yeah, yeah that's true. And, and the, the original question about why this area is also important to the world as a whole mm-hmm is a lot of the species that occur here have been taken to different parts of the world because of what they produce. For example, Douglas fir, one of the most prominent species in the Pacific Northwest and in the western United States, has been taken you know, to New Zealand, Australia, to England, and planted so that it will produce wood for people. Mm-hmm. And so there are quite a few species that are um, all over the world that have been taken from this area. So this area, like you said at the very beginning of the show, is kind of a prominent area in terms of the ecology and how it's influenced the, gro- the globe. Now, I had a scientist one time tell me from here years and years ago that... Uh, this particular area uh, in southern Oregon wasn't affected by the Ice Age as, as predominant as other parts of the world, at the right. planet. What, what, what did that mean? What is, well, what that's is, exactly right. When you look at the four different uh, episodes of the Ice Age, uh, during what we call the Ice Age, there, the ice advanced and receded and advanced mm-hmm. and receded mm-hmm. four times. Mm-hmm. But the... Klamath Geological Province, the area of southwestern Oregon, was relatively unaffected. And so a lot of the species that were here that might have been otherwise wiped out by the I huge ice uh, remained. So it's kind of the analogy that I like to use. It's kind of like if you have this library and you people don't like it and they burn all the books, you've lost a lot of information. Right. So here it's like the species are the books. This area has never lost the books, so to speak. We have all of this information wrapped up in all of these species, and it's invaluable for not only the Pacific Northwest, the rest of the northern hemisphere in the globe. Yeah. Now, uh, there's a lot of water under the ground 
here in this area. Uh, was that influ- because of the influence of that? Uh, that's that's part of it. But if you look at, uh, you mentioned that this is kind of a rainforest. This area is more of a Mediterranean climate. Okay. And by Mediterranean, it's like what you'd imagine. Spain and France and the areas around, around the Mediterranean mm-hmm. are, are relatively dry. And so if you compare, say, Eugene and, and Portland and even as close as Roseburg, those are temperate forests, and they have a lot of water. For our listeners around the world listening, that is in northern Oregon. Uh, you, Roseburg is an hour north from here. Eugene is two hours north from here. And Portland would be three and a half hours north of Oregon. Uh, so they, they, that's when there is a change that begins very, is it a, dom, a very definite change or is it a subtle change? It's a, it's a very, it's a very uh, slow transitional change, and thank okay. you for pointing that out yes. to where we are. Yeah. The, so when you get from um, a, a couple hours north of southwestern Oregon, mm-hmm. a lot of times the most limiting factor for regeneration is temperature. But down here, when we get to this area, it's often very clear at night, clear during the day, and the summers don't see a lot of rain. Mm-hmm. So the most important limiting factor for regeneration in southwestern Oregon is water. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've done work uh, with the people on the National Forest System to make sure that they knew what areas they had to plant first uh, when the snow started leaving the sites, mm-hmm. and those were the areas that ran out of water first. Mm-hmm. So water is a very important criteria for regeneration, particularly in uh, southwestern Oregon. Now, in southwestern Oregon, there's no end of mountains, high mountains, beautiful high mountains, right. snuggled among each other with, with um, valleys and a lot of trees. Um, what is it, how unique is that to the ecosystem, that there's so many mountains and those valleys and so many trees? Well, you know, it's not that unique. What's very unique about southwestern Oregon uh, compared to the western United States mm-hmm. is that a lot of times you'll have a mountain range like our Cascade Range, which is kind of in the middle of, goes down the middle of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Most of the streams run from east to west, and so you have this pattern of major ridges that run from east to west. Mm -hmm. One of the unique things about southwestern Oregon is there is no particular orientation to the drainage pattern. So what that does, it kind of jumbles up the possibilities for different sites, and if I go back to the library analogy, it's a possibility for having a number of different sections, a number of different uh, shelves, and so you have a lot more what ecologic, ecologists call niches for species to inhabit. Mm-hmm. So where you may have, you know, the coast range of Oregon or the coast ranges of California or the Rockies, the drainages are predictable and oriented, you know, in a per- particular uh, orientation where here... Uh, you know, a lot of times our uh, people don't understand aquifers. Uh-huh. Um, would you explain and give us a definition of an aquifer? 
Okay, aquifer is just basically the easiest way to understand it. It's kind of like an underground river. It is, uh-huh. And so, you know, uh, one of the interesting things of driving along uh, the freeways, when you see road cuts, uh, there's one that's very outstanding to me when you go from uh, Grants Pass to Medford, and you see this big uh, cut bank on the freeway, and at the bottom of the cut bank, there's all of this alder and... uh, uh, blackberry and sedge and all of these water-loving plants and you look above on the uh, top of the cut bank and there's all these dry uh, looking plants so what you've got is kind of this underground path that has been cut you know um, <laughs> kind of perpendicular to the uh, direction of flow and it's a little bit uh, an aquifer that comes out and that part of the freeway is always wet moist and you see all of these water loving plants and you're thinking hey what the heck is that oh in other words there's these plants that are growing abundantly and uh, there's no river next to them nobody's going over there and watering them every day but there is water beneath those those type of uh, of plants yes and it's an indication of one of those underground rivers or aquifers okay that's kind of coming down well what what and then and then okay underground rivers now explain um, the underground rivers, aquifers, do they influence each other uh, throughout the planet? As example, when they were having many floods in the United States this year, would those aquifers have uh, cracks and crevices to influence other aquifers throughout the cavity of the planet? Uh, no. There's, there usually, if you look at, probably the best way to look at that is like uh, looking at the idea of a watershed. Okay. Like, for example, the Rogue River follows uh, from the um, Crater Lake, and it goes down and comes out at uh, Gold Beach. Mm-hmm. So this influences this general watershed, mm-hmm. but it doesn't influence the uh, Mount Hood watershed that's 300 miles away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it does, it's so small an influence that it's probably not worth dealing with. So that there's not so much of an interconnection between aquifers uh, that you that you propose. It's more like think about it like watersheds and streams. So now, what's, what's the difference between an aquifer and an underground river? Well, the basically one of the things that uh, it's not uh, above ground river. You're just seeing uh, the cubic feet per second that is running down the river could be quite high, like just watching the Rogue River flow. You could sit there. Watch the river flow. Yeah, you could see the water going like crazy. Mm -hmm. But in an aquifer, you're talking about slow seep often and very slow rates of Mm -hmm. of, uh, flow as compared to rivers. And And then uh, an underground river, what's the difference? Well, that's the ones you don't see that are underground. That is, is that an aquifer too, or well, is, are they separate? There's very, there's very, there are very few underground rivers. There's some that you know are very, very small. Like if you go, probably the best example here in southwestern Oregon is the um, Oregon Caves National Monument, yeah. where when you go into the caves and it's limestone. Okay. There are places in that, those caves that you have little, uh, you wouldn't call them rivers, they're not that big, but there are places that the water flows 
uh, relatively freely. And there are caves throughout the United States that do the same thing. So you might call them underground rivers, but uh, that's uh, an aquifer is mainly an area that is, oh, like the Central Valley in California. That area under uh, underground has been charged with uh, water over the years, and agriculture has been, you know, drilling wells and and using it over time, and that's not so much. So, when a person drills a well, they're they're hoping below there there's an aquifer. Well, not in this case, it's not so much an aquifer as the water table. It may water not table. be moving in the Central Valley. It okay. may be more like drilling for oil in a sense. Okay. That uh, there is water that the the Central Valley and the Sacramento Valley the San Joaquin and Sacramento Valleys have accumulated over the years, kind of like I said, kind of like... Now, isn't it fascinating that some people can move on top of a mountain, build a house, well, they uh, dig for their water, and they get water, and they'll then build their house. Now, is that because the water table is that high? Well, yeah, there are some cases that that's the case. And in my own uh, area up here in Merlin, it's very interesting uh, I have a well that uh, produces about 20-some gallons a minute, mm-hmm. and my neighbor, who's uh, 100 yards away, has a well that produces about 5 gallons a minute. Yeah, that's the known, yeah. And so basically what you'd have to say... So let's say we go over to uh, another country, and they're, they, they would almost say, could they say the same thing? Well, that there is, di- there are differences in the amount of water everywhere. Uh, yes, that you bet they could say the same thing. There's no standard water table, yeah. even even in Oregon, and mm-hmm. so you could. I mean, it's like drilling for oil. Like I said, there's there are probably many dry holes, and there are probably many people that have spent a lot of money on wells that have never found water. Well, we're getting ready to uh, say goodbye here on this class. Room. I'm loving it. But before we go, tell us how important it is for a forestry generation. In other words, planting the trees and, and uh, putting that oxygen in the air. How important is it uh, for a tree to put clean moisture oxygen in the air if, uh, around the world? Uh, and you're part of a forestry generation plan. Well, it's, it's very important. It's, it's just like... Uh, having babies, in a sense, is that to keep the population going, you have to have regeneration. Mm-hmm. So we're in that same condition, and air, uh, clean air, is one of the things that trees help provide. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, you know, when you're talking around the Los Angeles Basin, or there's many places that air have lichens on them, and they kind of purify some of the pollutants in our air. So forests are very important in terms of providing the things that we talked about in Maslow's hierarchy, the air, the water, and the shelter, which is a sense part of safety. And making everything on nature feel safer. Yes. Enjoyed it. This was a lot of fun. We really covered a lot. I hope you do it again. I appreciate your time. Okay. And you have a wonderful day. You too, and thanks, Sharon. Thank you. Bye. Wow. Did we learn a lot? Uh, I hope you were able to keep up with that, um, Tom, because he is so full of information, and I've had so many people just praise 
his 37 years of knowledge and study and, and understanding the nature of this globe. We're going to have our next guest is Sky McLean from Nevada, who's the lead field interpreter with Lake Mead. And I know many of you have heard of Las Vegas, and we're going to know more about Nevada and Lake Mead. We're going to listen to our sponsor, and we're going to come back again to another part of our classroom, nature. We'll listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. We're going to be introducing uh, to you Sky McLean. Before we do that, I need to uh, remind everyone that if you want to ask any questions or come in for further information about more of our shows, uh, that we have with World Talk Radio and the Sharon Kleiner Hour, The Power of Water, you can go into Sharon Kleiner Hour at yahoo.com. Again, Sharon Kleiner, K-L-E-Y-N-E, Hour at yahoo.com, and, and check out a lot of our shows. They've been very exciting, and we're full of information. It's soft listening. Uh, I think it's very a lot of fun. We're learning a lot from our special guests who take time away from their busy days. Sky, are you with us? Yes, I am. I'm here. It's nice to talk with you. It's nice to speak with you today. Thank you. I want to learn a little bit about you. Um, how long have you been doing? Uh, you're a lead field interpreter. What does that mean? Uh, well, I've been with the Park Service off and on for about 10 years. I started as a volunteer mm-hmm. and then uh, working with environmental education groups, kids that came out for classroom programs. And oh. uh, then I became a seasonal and basically did the same kind of work. And now I am, um, this will be my third year of a full-time position here where I help with Oh, some of our management planning, as well as the kinds of um, programs we might offer to the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, I work on some uh, youth programs still, and I also coordinate the hike program and do some tortoise um, work as well. It's just kind of all over the board. My job as an interpreter, uh, as most all of the national park interpreters, is just to tell the stories of that park that we work at. The nature of that park. Right, whether that's historical significance of, say, the building of Hoover Dam to what are the recreational um, uh, concerns that we may have as we start looking at low water issues or uh, the growth of the Las Vegas Valley in terms of that population. Now, is Lake Lake Mead in Las Vegas? Well, we are about 35 miles from Las Vegas. Um, we actually straddle the Nevada-Arizona border, oh, okay. and we run about 110 miles long from the mouth of the Grand Canyon all the way to 
basically Laughlin, uh, Nevada, which is right across the river from Bullhead City, Arizona. Now, your water source is coming from which direction? Is it coming from another state into Nevada? Yes, we get, uh, I would say, about 95% of the water that comes into uh, Lake Mead National Recreation Area or Lake Mead Reservoir um, is coming from the Colorado Mountains, the Rocky Mountains snowmelt, and all the tributaries that may drain uh, those Rocky Mountains that are in Colorado and Utah. And everything's flowing into the Colorado River and eventually finds its way to this kind of big bathtub in the um, desert. And we have two large reservoirs. We have the Lake Mead Reservoir above Hoover Dam, and then we have the sister lake below Hoover Dam called Lake Mojave. And that one, Lake Mojave, is contained between two dams, Hoover Dam and Davis Dam. Now, Hoover Dam, didn't at one time, wasn't it one of the largest dams in our country? Yes, I think it still is one of the largest. It used to be, back in the early 30s, the Mm -hmm. largest. Mm -hmm. And there was basically about 21,000 men that came from all over the United States, and actually even some that came from outside of uh, the United States to work on that. How how long did it take them to build a dam? Um, It took about three to four years, and then it took about five years for it to actually fill the reservoir behind Hoover Dam. Now, how important is the Hoover Dam for your water sources? Because your drainage is coming from the Colorado, uh, the state of Colorado. How important is that? Because if, let's say, if Colorado has any problems with a drought or water drainage is slow, your dam is capable of holding enough water to support you. Uh, how much water do you think it's holding? Is that, I'm well, sorry, I know that... it's about 50% full right now, which goes directly to what you were um, mentioning, is uh-huh. that if we don't get the snowfall in the Rockies, uh, then over the course of time, because seven states are taking their full allocation of their waters um, by law. They can take uh, water out of the Colorado River system, mm-hmm. and um, if they take all of their allocations and then we still we don't get enough water coming in from the mm-hmm. snow melt mm-hmm. then you start getting kind of this leaky bathtub uh, uh, idea and that is generally what's kind of happening right now is that even though the color, uh, the Rocky Mountains had about 120% of uh, their snowfall this last winter um, because it's been about a seven year uh, sequence of drought years in that we haven't been getting enough snow, it has caused the lake level to drop. Mm-hmm. Now, last winter, didn't you have enough snow last winter? Well, last winter, yes, but they ended up holding the majority of Because that of water. what was happening in the past, the droughts, you're just starting to try to catch up. Nature's trying right. to catch up. And what happened with that water or that snow melt is they held a majority of it in Glen Canyon, which is above... Um, the uh, Grand Canyon, and so they held that in Lake Powell. Mm-hmm. So basically, both of the reservoirs that support those seven states. In other words, if you didn't have a half full, if you didn't have a reservoir, you would have a real problem. Yes, and a lot of times when people come to Lake Mead to look at the lake, they say, well, there's a drought, but what they need to understand is we here in the Mojave Desert, where we're just the holding tank, we are always, I guess, what you would call in a drought because we only get four to six inches of rain a year. Where that water is coming from, that's where we're talking about those drought conditions. Now, tell us about Lake Mead. What size is that lake? 
Well, it's about 110 miles long. Uh, we have about 500 miles of shoreline around Lake Mead. So Lake Mead is, is 110 dam. miles long? The the Lake Mead National Recreation Area, which would be oh, the, the Colorado area. River System. Okay. So uh, so I'm talking about um, probably the, the area, miles not above Hoover Dam and miles below Hoover Dam. Okay, okay. And, and uh, uh, what kind of trees do you have in your forest there? Well, where the the reservoir is, we have some willow trees and some mesquite trees, but we're in a desert, so you're going to get really much uh, smaller trees than, say, another part of our national park. Which so do you have cactus? Yep, we have cacti- ba- beaver tail cactus. Uh-huh. We have teddy bear choya cactus. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a lot of shrubs, from the creosote bush to different kinds of sages, uh-huh. Um, and we have a jar, we do have a Joshua tree that looks a little bit more prickly than what you might look at uh, or think about for a tree. And so the animal habitat, what kind of animals do you have? Well, we've got our general desert animals that would be your uh, wily coyote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've got small little what we call antelope ground squirrels. A lot of people mistake them for chipmunks, but uh, oh, okay. they are actually very, very small squirrels. Uh, lots of snakes and reptiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the uh, desert tortoise that we're, uh, um, we do a lot of work with that particular you wild protect animal. that so people don't take them away. Right, because it's a threatened species here in the Mojave Desert, we take extra precautions about, uh, you know, maybe educating people about the tortoise and how not to touch them because uh, they are federally protected because of that status they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, uh, you're now over in Lake, the Lake Mead area, uh, are there any lodges on the edges and in uh, your park system to where people can come and stay and enjoy the uh, recreation of learning more about a desert. Uh, are there any places to go and stay? Yeah, there's probably 8 million visitors that pass through Lake Mead, and a significant number of them will stay at uh, either along the shorelines, camping at our campsites, or okay. we've got seven different marinas that people can rent boats at, and we have about four different uh, small lodges or motels that people could stay at uh-huh. along the length of the uh, So if a per- person comes River. to your website, which website would they go to to learn more about that? They would go to www.nps, that would stand for National Park Service, .gov, forward slash L-A-M-E. That stands for Lake Mead. Okay. Now, uh, what kind of recreation do they have in the water? Are you allowed to uh, water ski? Yes. uh, We have everything from water skiing to jet skiing to fishing. Uh, People like to swim. We've got kind of a shoreline area that's in what we call the Boulder Basin area where people will swim. They have sailboating, um, different kind of special events that people can come down to the shoreline. um, Now, you know, Sky, when you're talking about the desert, does it, does there, now, the first time I'm thinking, because I have not been to Lake Mead, but do you have the desert come to the shoreline of the lake, or is there, is there what's that, what does it look like? 
I know. A lot of times when people come, they are looking for sandy beaches or those uh-huh. nice trees that might shade you around maybe a mountain lake. Uh-huh. But we remind everyone, you are definitely in a desert. So You're when you desert. are coming to the shoreline. It's almost like a mirage. Yes. you are. It's a rocky shoreline. And okay. unless you're in one of our picnic areas where maybe we've planted a number of um, trees that are uh-huh. native, um, you're just going to be need to bring maybe some kind of uh, shade structure so that you'll have that protection from the sun. Like uh, today, I think we're supposed to get to 111 degrees. Oh, my goodness. Yes, so you have to be really careful about, you know, all that safety precautions from sunscreen to drinking lots of water to trying to, you know, seek shade. Now, do you have water uh, at the camps, of course, and modern conditions uh, Mm -hmm. uh, for people? uh, So for, uh, but again, that is fascinating because when do you think is the best time to come when it isn't 111 degrees? What is your weather conditions, uh, let's say, two months ago and up into September? I would say the summer months are going to be our hottest, which is surprisingly is when we get most, I would say most of our people that are accessing the water are going to be here during the hottest, driest part of our whole year. Mm -hmm. Um, So two months ago was probably the beginning of June. Um, We have probably a lot of people out here. What I would suggest to most people that want to come and maybe explore outside of the lake, Mm-hmm. Um, that's when basically October to April, that's going to be the cooler months that can be anywhere from 70s to 90s. Depending What's it on like around November, December? That's great. We do our most of our hiking during that period of time. We offer probably up to 10 hikes a month, um, and we'll go anywhere from something that's fairly short, maybe a two-mile stroll along the seashore, um, to maybe a seven- or eight-mile hike that's out in a wilderness area. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I, I don't know, it, it just incredibly uh, striking rock formations and mountain formations mm-hmm. here from Beautiful really recipe. dramatic blacks and to probably good, fr- wonderful fresh air. Oh, yeah. We really have, because the Mojave Desert kind of has a really definite wind pattern to it, uh, anytime there you might get even uh, a sense of maybe the stillness or kind of smog-like conditions that might be in the Las Vegas Valley, which is just over the mountains, probably within, you know, a day or so the winds come through and just clear all of that out. So even though we do have some concerns about that in the Las Vegas Valley and how that might impact Lake Mead over the mountains, um, for the basic, we just really have a lot of blue skies and beautiful uh, country. And almost year-round, except for this heat condition right now, probably that people want to have a break during November, December, January, February, and go get some fresh air and recreation. Could they water ski during those months, or is it getting cooler? Um, I think it might be getting too cool for that. I I wouldn't be surprised if, and I see scuba divers out here all the time Uh during the winter months, so there's there are the opportunities if you want to brave kind of those cooler. You know, it uh, sounds almost like Lake Mead uh, in my mind. Sky is like uh, the, uh, a mirage. It's a hidden lake uh, until people hear about it and they want to go someplace for therapy and fresh air and nature in the months uh, that are usually colder all over the United States because you think of desert conditions uh, to be a, a lot of fun in the winter. 
We, you know, we get a lot of the classic snowbirds that come, but also just people wanting to get away, like you were saying. It's a nice place to, in a way, it is kind of that mirage in the desert. You come around uh, some of the corners, and there's just this magnificent lake that's laid out in front of you, and it, it really does entice you. I think everyone enjoys being around water, and there's just something about that natural quality of water that really draws people. And uh, whether they're coming, uh, kind of passing through, through uh, the road that runs past the lake to Hoover Dam or where they're trying to just explore the shorelines. or um, We have a couple of um, roads that actually run along the lake, and uh, it just really, I think it is inspiring. So if a person goes to Las Vegas, they could go 30 minutes away and spend a whole day with another type of recreation. Yeah, we offer a lot of, um, well, there's a, there's a paddle wheel boat that goes out onto the lake a couple of times a day. Mm-hmm. It's about an hour and 45 minute ride and you catch it in the Boulder Basin right near Hoover Dam. Um, it takes you down the canyon to where the dam is and it comes back. So you get a definite well, That's a nice way of, to close uh, the, the segment here is, uh, thinking about going to Las Vegas and, uh, going out there about 30 minutes away and doing something other than being in the hubbub of Las Vegas with all the people. Well, Sky, I want to thank you for educating us about Lake Mead. You definitely have a lot of information, and you're doing a good job because I really was fascinated. I would like to come sometime in the winter. Well, I hope everyone that's listening wants to come out and take a look at Lake Mead. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have a nice day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, Earth has a magic. But remember, we all shoot Sky McLean was right. We draw to the water. And the water is our life on this earth. I'm hoping you're drinking 8 to 12 glasses of water a day. I was listening to someone describe someone who lost a lot of weight, almost 200 pounds. They went on a water diet. And they said, I wonder why that worked. They didn't have to have surgery. And uh, they're going to keep up their water diet for the rest of their lives. And I said, because the body is made up of 60 trillion cells. And each cell has a water. You must drink water. You must be in an area where you're not so dry in the air. I want to thank you for listening each week time. And each week we're on live from 10 to 11 West Coast time uh, worldwide. I want you to know that World Talk Radio puts this on the web and after the show is over. So you can go in and choose the one you want to listen to. Our guests are special. They come from busy lives and have a lot of information. Earth has a secret. Embrace your life, every precious moment. Earth is whispering, never say goodbye. I want to thank you for listening. Have a nice day. The world is talking. World Talk Radio.